Last time on Solvable, investigators focused their attention on Philip, Gwen's boyfriend, who ran off with her and Alicia just after Thanksgiving of 1982. After a few days, Philip returned to Missouri without the mother and daughter, and his conflicting stories about where they were didn't sit right with Gwen's family. But at the time, there was nothing that they could do. We've done searches with her social security number, which turned up nothing, absolutely nothing. As of 1982, no public assistance, no, no nothing. There's nothing out there with her name on it past 1982. Decades later, Jackson County Sheriff's officials announced the true identity of Gwen and Alicia to the public, bringing some closure to the Southern Mississippi community. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for coming out today. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Sheriff Mike Ezell, the sheriff here in Jackson County. And uh, we want to welcome you to Jackson County and we thank you for being a part of this uh, long-term event that has been going on here in Jackson County for many years. So on December the 5th, 1982, 38 years ago tomorrow, the body of a female toddler was discovered in the Escataba River through DNA testing at the Ortham Lab. Baby Jane has been identified as Alicia Ann Heinrich, daughter of Gwendolyn Clemens, both of whom went missing in Missouri in 1982. Not long after that press conference, Teresa, Gwen's sister, revealed that in the years after Gwen vanished, their grandmother received multiple phone calls from an unknown man, claiming that Gwen and Alicia were alive and well. Investigators' suspicions about Philip led them to believe that he was the person who could have made those phone calls. He would have had the grandmother's phone number through his dog grooming service. My grandma took her dogs to him, so he would have had access to her phone number just to throw us off to where, you know, that we think that she's okay, but we never did. For a long time, investigators in Jackson County thought that no one saw Gwen or Alicia after their trip to Florida with Philip. That is, until they spoke with James, Gwen's second ex-husband. During a phone interview with us last fall, James swore that he actually saw Gwen alive seven years after she went missing. Now, I'll tell you like I told the cops. I saw her once after that in 1989. I was outside mowing my yard, and she drove by that house in a car and saw me and slowed down, literally slowed down to a crawl. I could have walked beside the car looking at me until she passed my house. And then she left, and I never saw her since then. How confident are you that that was her that you saw back then? Oh, very. I'm pretty confident it was her, <laughs> you know? Did she? Because she looked right at me. She was wearing her glasses, and she looked right at me. So that was like seven or eight years after she left. Yeah. We're not suggesting that you should doubt James's story, but it is important for us to let you know that when James first agreed to speak with us for the show, he commented that he did have medical issues that impact his memory. In our interview, he was adamant that Gwen was the woman who he saw in 1989 Enough to swear to that information when Jackson County investigators interviewed him. I mean, James was married to Gwen after all. I'm sure he would recognize his ex-wife, 
right? For a period of time in his life, he woke up next to her and he fell asleep next to her every day. It's hard to mistake an intimate partner's identity. On top of that, James and Gwen went to high school together too. They'd known one another for years, so there's long-term memories there as well. I found myself asking the question that you probably are, and that is, is it possible that Gwen drove by James's house at one point, just as he remembers it? But maybe the date he remembers that happening is just wrong in his mind. Of course that's possible. Like with so many aspects of this case, unless Gwen is found, there are parts of the story we will likely never get the answers to. While researching this case, we've gone over the many theories as to what could have happened, but those theories seem to evolve and change every time we learn a new piece of information. The same can be said for law enforcement. After thinking about this case nearly every day during the year we've been putting this show together, we still found ourselves settling at different possibilities of what happened to Gwen and Alicia. The reality of the situation is that none of our theories may be what actually happened, but here are a few scenarios we believe the case evidence and witness interviews strongly point to. One, Philip was involved and did something to Alicia and Gwen, either on his way to or from Florida. If you believe that theory, then James's story about seeing Gwen alive in 1989 cannot be accurate. You also have to believe that Philip was lying when he told Gwen's family in Missouri that he dropped Gwen and Alicia off with a rich man in Kansas City before returning home to his wife and kids. Here's Sergeant Eddie Clark again to explain the details of that story. We had actually got the story from Teresa that the suspect had came back and told the father, told Gwen's father that he had dropped her off in Kansas City, Missouri. And that's where she met this multi-millionaire. He owned a yacht in Florida, and her, the baby, and this millionaire took off for Florida. The second theory is that Philip was not involved. This theory means that Philip was just a troubled man who abandoned Gwen and Alicia in Mississippi after realizing he'd made a terrible mistake leaving his family in Missouri for his girlfriend. If that's the case, and he really had nothing to do with Gwen and Alicia's fate, it's possible he just left them on I-10 in Jackson County in December 1982, and they fell victim to violence by someone else's hands. Perhaps they were even victims of the same person or persons who may have been responsible for killing several other young women in Jackson County in the 1970s and 80s. This theory brings us back to the tales of convicted criminal Lovey Riddle, who we talked about at length earlier this season. You have to ask yourself the question, did what happened to Alicia and Gwen occur just as Lovey explained in his journals? Lovey even said that a biker by the name of Spider had actually thrown Delta over that bridge. He was in a biker club. And then with the Delta case, he said Spider had hooked up with a mom who had a child. And in his journals, he admitted that he's the one that killed Delta and shot the mother with a 22 under her tent. 
It's hard to decipher what's true and what's false when it comes to Lovey's claims. But what we do know is true is that in the same area, in the years leading up to Alicia being found dead and Gwen vanishing, Rosemary Lewandowski, Janie Sanders, Deborah Gunter, and Clara Turk were brutally abducted and murdered. The big question is, did the murders of young women in Southern Mississippi stop after Clara Turk was killed in 1979? Because if the deaths didn't end with Clara, then it's very possible that Gwen and Alicia were additional victims of the same or similar killers operating in Jackson County. We reached out to Lieutenant Darren Versaja of the Pascagoula Police Department to clarify when he remembers the rate of violent murders slowing or halting altogether. And his response was shocking. According to Darren Versaja with the Pascagoula Police Department, the abduction and murder of teenage girls, children, young women, and even men in Jackson County did not stop after Clara Turk was killed in 1979. Darren rattled off several unsolved murder cases that followed Clara's case, and that sent us on a quest for more information. For starters, we already knew about Baby Jane too, who Jackson County investigator Hope Manning realized was buried next to Alicia Heinrich's unnamed grave in 1988. But we were completely unprepared for the volume of cases we'd find in NamUs that all tie back to the Jackson County, Mississippi region. On December 24, 1987, skeletal remains of a man who'd been stabbed multiple times were found in a muddy area in Escatapa's Greenwood Cemetery near the Escatapa River. He'd been there for a substantial amount of time. March 11, 1990, the lower torso of a white male was found floating in the Mississippi Sound just offshore from Pascagoula. Dark work pants were found with the remains, and in the pocket was a key fob from a Pensacola, Florida car lot. The words court van were scratched on the back of the fob. According to a forensic anthropologist, the remains could have been in the water for as long as five years. February 1st, 1991, female remains were found in the nearby town of Van Cleve, Mississippi. There was recently a big update on this case. While we were producing this show in June of 2021, genetic genealogy results came back for this Jane Doe. After 30 years of being unnamed and unknown, she was officially identified as Kimberly Ann Funk of Sharon, Pennsylvania. If that doesn't prove just how important and impactful genetic genealogy testing efforts can be, I don't know what could. Kimberly Funk's success story is definitely worth celebrating. But even in that excitement, we can't lose sight of the fact that there are so many other cases in Jackson County that need resolution. On April 17, 1992, a male was found washed ashore in a county waterway and mummified. His autopsy showed that he's likely been placed in a cooler or frozen for an unknown period of time before being put into the water. December 5, 1992, hunters in Van Cleve found partial skeletal remains of a male while we were pulling information, we also took a look at murders that occurred prior to Alicia and Gwen's case in 1982, just to see what other deaths we didn't know about. On January 1st, 1972, a female's body and a blanket with it was found under the sand laying by a waterway. No clothing was noted as being with the victim. December 27th, 1977. Three men rabbit hunting found a female victim's body in the woods at Highway 613 and I-10. At the time, I-10 was not complete, 
so it's just a wooded area. It's pretty shocking and almost unbelievable how many murder victims there are in one geographic area of Southern Mississippi. And not only that, but all of these cases from NamUs are still unsolved. This includes a case we brought up earlier this season, Baby Jane 2, the little girl who was buried next to Alicia Heinrich in 1988. At the end of June, 2021, Jackson County Sheriff's investigators exhumed Baby Jane 2's body thanks to donations. They are now in the process of getting DNA testing done on the remains and having an out-of-state lab do genetic genealogy. We could have made countless podcasts about these victims, but as you've heard in the last nine episodes, Baby Alicia's case and our investigation into what happened to her and to her mother, Gwen, has taken a lot of time in and of itself. Another realistic theory our solvable team and Jackson County investigators have considered that could explain what happened to Gwen and baby Alicia is Ted, the truck driver who initially reported seeing an adult's body in the Pascagoula River the same day Alicia's tiny body was found in the Escataba River. His story has wavered wildly over the years. First, he said he for sure saw a body floating in the river, but then years later, he changed his story to say that he didn't see a body at all. He only heard a baby cry. Those inconsistencies and his unwillingness to speak with us for the show caused us to wonder if it's possible he played a bigger role in the events back in 1982. Mississippi authorities have discussed Ted and the details of his story at length during group discussions we've sat in on. So that's what I'm wondering. When did the interstate you were having 1980? 19, it was 80 or 81. I think it was 81. So if you were having a problem oh, with your trucks, yeah. mm-hmm. why would you? And two, if you had seen that woman there at the Long Bridge, why wouldn't you stop at the first place? There's a phone. You know, you can see that truck stop there. That's the next. The next stop is going to be JJ's or Ford's or whatever. And perfectly describe the mother. And then we end up a couple miles down the road finding that's where the biggest point I had in this is when he perfectly described what so she me. was wearing. I know. That's I mean, me. that to me is like... You wouldn't be able to spot that, but I just don't get the being able to be able to clothe in Right. Yeah. That, yes. Sure. As you're going down the interstate yeah. without stopping and, yeah. and looking and saying, that's a flat shirt. Now, if you knew yeah. what she had on, that her? Yeah. you yeah. killed her. As true as that statement may be, it's still important to mention that truck driver Ted has never been arrested for what happened to baby Alicia or Gwen. The last theory we've brought up throughout this show is one that suggests the possibility that Gwen is still alive. Over and over, the evidence and testimony in this case doesn't support that. But because Gwen's body has never been found, and we can't even say for sure that she is dead, we can't rule out the idea that she could still be alive. This theory takes into consideration James's alleged sighting of Gwen and a few other factors her family discussed in their interviews. Overall, it's hard to commit to one theory over the other. Aunt Alicia, Gwen's sister-in-law, is convinced Gwen was a murder victim and has been dead for decades. She's a very caring mom and I know that she wouldn't have been no threat to nobody, you know. It just makes you wonder, you know, why, what goes through people's mind, why they think something like that. It's, it's very sad. 
it would be nice to know to get Gwen, find her, and bring her back so she can be with her family. Gwen being deceased is likely at this point, but there's still so much that's unknown, and that's the reality the Jackson County Sheriff's Office and every investigator who's worked on this case has had to face. That's the only one that, like I told you, is the only one that haunts me and, well, Greg and a few others that have passed away, but it's the only one that haunted us because we couldn't ever put our finger on who did it. The why is still there. Alicia Ann Heinrich has her name back, but Gwendolyn Clemens is still waiting to be found. In all of the cases we've shared with you this season, there's a person waiting for their name. There's John Doe's and Jane Doe's, whose identities and stories are mysteries that need to be unraveled. With so many individuals waiting to be reunited with their identities, We discussed as a team how we could help leverage the impact of what we're doing to move the needle in the right direction. We've decided to use the platform this podcast has created to raise funds to complete genetic genealogy testing on as many of these John and Jane Doe cases from Jackson County as possible. If you want to make a financial donation to that cause, we encourage you to give directly to the Jackson County Mississippi Sheriff's Auxiliary Fund which is a nonprofit 501c3. Here's Chief Deputy John Ledbetter to explain a little more about that fund. We could use this to accept funds for investigative purposes that aren't outlined in the, in the general fund to accept donations from the public for ongoing investigations, stuff that isn't budgeted. Obviously, you guys are now getting, you're getting pretty good at figuring out how to follow that DNA evidence and solve cases. Moving forward, is that something that the Sheriff's Department is interested in moving forward and solving other cases in the future? Absolutely so. Uh, As you know, buried right next to uh, Alicia, who is Baby Jane, buried right next to her, is another Baby Jane, Baby Jane 2. That's a case from 1988 another Jackson County case. That's our intention, is to use this technology and use the investigative techniques from Baby Jane's case, from Alicia's case, to use towards this case and doing the same exact thing. So we have a a lot of work ahead of us to do on that. We're going to use the experiences that we've learned in this first case, this first Baby Jane case, Alicia's case, to go forward with any and other applicable cases that we can use it on to solve unknown deaths and murders that we have in Jackson County, anything that we can assist. Anything that we have outstanding as far as cold cases, we would approach the same way that we have. It's been beneficial to us throughout this investigation, and we expect the same in other investigations. Chief Ledbetter emphasized the best way to donate is to contact the Jackson County Sheriff's Office Auxiliary Fund directly through the department. That information is on our website, solvablepodcast.com. As for the research portion of genetic genealogy, Amanda's company, Advanced DNA, will donate the genetic genealogy research to any cases the Jackson County Sheriff's Office requests help on. By removing the financial barrier, 
that many agencies face when considering genetic genealogy, it's the solvable team's hope that some of these individuals may be reunited with their identities. And like Alicia Heinrich's family, they can get a chance for some answers as to what became of their missing loved one. From our experience, we know it can be hard for an agency to get funding for genetic genealogy and cold case investigations. And it can be even harder to raise funds for John and Jane Doe cases. These victims don't have family members advocating for attention on their cases. Sometimes it takes someone within the agency or people within the community to step up and be the advocate for the case of a stranger, to be the squeaky wheel, if you will. As Sergeant Eddie Clark puts it, there are more cases than anyone can imagine that need your help. And a financial contribution to genetic genealogy testing is a huge resource. The only things Eddie says have been missing to push these cases forward are people willing to help find a resolution and truly believe, like we do, that every case is solvable. Please come forward. You know, it's, you know these types of crimes, they, they, they're so disturbing because, you know, you just completely erase this person. You, you completely take this, everything away from this person. Not only were they killed or murdered or, you know, whatever the circumstances were, but, you know, you completely erase them. They don't even exist anymore without a name. And they never existed without a name. And that's, that's gut-wrenching. Somebody's loved one is, is in this situation and, and nobody knows Solvable is an Audio Chuck original show. Narration by Amanda Reno and Greg Bodker. Produced by 1982 AudioCast. Series advisor, Delia D'Ambra. Sound design and editing by Kyle O'Connor. If you have any information on the cases mentioned at any time in this podcast series, we urge you to make a call to the Mississippi Coast Crime Stoppers line at 1-877-787-5898 or visit their website at mscoastcrimestoppers.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to Sheriff Mike Gazelle and the Jackson County Sheriff's Office for their participation in the making of this podcast with special thanks to the family of Gwendolyn Mae Clemens and Alicia Ann Heinrich and all others who gave their time with the hope of advancing their case and the cases of others in Jackson County, Mississippi. 